here in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. <clears throat> Continue our study here through the book of Romans. And uh, if you weren't with us last week, we got into Romans 9 here a little bit, and we're going to continue this study. And if you haven't been with us with Romans here for a while, just a quick, quick review, reminder, the first eight chapters of Romans dealt with this concept of sin and salvation and presenting the idea of the gospel message and how we all need the gospel message and how we all need Christ, obviously, to be the Savior for our sins. Well, that was the first eight chapters. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, now it uses some examples of hearing the gospel message, but also rejecting the gospel message. And the big example in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is obviously Israel rejecting the call of salvation there from the Savior. Well, now from chapter 12 on, then it's going to be practical application of let's put this all together. So we're kind of in this middle part here of Romans 9, 10, and 11. As if you were with us last week, we mentioned how these three chapters all kind of form a point within themselves. And it's tough because if you really want to study this out, it would be great to do 9, 10, and 11 together as one entity, but time does not allow us to do this. We have to kind of break this up a little bit. So last week, we talked about in chapter 9, the first few verses there, this idea of having a heart for the lost and deeply desiring to see people get saved in Christ. And then the next part was making sure that we're not trusting in ourselves or in our flesh and our works make sure that we're right with Christ. That the only way we can be right with Jesus is to believing and trusting in Him as our Lord and Savior. Well, we'll continue that point now throughout the rest of Romans 9. But we're going to do what I like to call a backwards message. We're going to actually start at the end of chapter 9 and work backwards. Because the key verse this morning, and we always like to find the key verse, key verse is verse 32 of Romans 9. It says, They did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, but I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to the knowledge. Here's the key. Verse 32. Let's go look at this just one more time. They did not seek it by faith, but as it were, but by the works of the law. What is it? It is salvation. It is that relationship with God. So what he does here in chapter 9, he uses the example of three different groups of people not having that relationship with the Lord. And why didn't they have that relationship with the Lord? Because they sought about it the wrong way. Verse 32, they were not going in faith, they were going by works. And the three people we're going to look at, we're going to look at Esau, we're going to look at Pharaoh, and we're going to look at Israel. Esau, Pharaoh, and Israel. And how they all had a misguided relationship with God based on works, not on Faith. And what Paul is trying to drive home the point here is, is it's supposed to be by faith and faith alone. And here's a verse that we hit really hard at the beginning of Romans. Romans 2, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we hit this point hard for the first eight chapters, that there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn salvation through Jesus. It's a gift. He died on the cross for you. There's nothing you can do to make yourself go deeper in the love of God. He loves you so much. So vital to know this. And the only way we can have salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. We're all sinners. All of us are sinners. And there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, to earn God's favor. It comes down to his verse 32, by faith. But what did they do wrong? Well, first thing you see in verse 32 is they try to do it by works. They try to earn God's salvation by works. Well, how do they try to do it? Well, some of them try to do it by the law. It still happens today. People still try to earn God's good works. If I really pray a whole awful lot, if I really read my Bible a whole awful lot, if I really help a lot of old ladies across the street, I will obviously, God will like me better. You realize how much God loves you? He couldn't love you anymore. 
He showed the ultimate example of love by dying on the cross for your sins. So therefore, there's no work that we can do that would make us right in the eyes of God. They stumbled over that, according to verse 32. And what happens in verse 2 of chapter 10? They did have a zeal for God, but they were zealously wrong. Have you ever met somebody that had a zeal for God? I've met people that had an honest zeal for God, but they were going about it their own way and not in the way of God. And they were trying to do their relationship with the Lord on their own. They were zealous for the Lord, but as verse 2 says, not according to knowledge, not according to the plan of scriptures. I see these people like this. My heart goes out to them. Why? Because verse 3, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They're zealous for God, but they don't have the knowledge of how to do it, verse 2, and they're ignorant of God's plan. These are the people that have that heart's desire to do it, but the problem is they want to do it on their own. They're what I call the I people. I can see my kids get saved. I can lead my grandkids to the Lord. I can fix this marriage. I can be a better witness at, at work. I can do this. Why? They're zealous. There's no doubt about that. But once again, they're zealously wrong. There's a lot of eyes in there. And so they're stumbling, verse 32. They're no knowledge of God's plan, verse 2. And they're being ignorant of what God wants them to do because they're so focused on the I. They're trying to do it all on their own. They can't do that. If you could do it on your own, why did Jesus have to die for our sins? If we could do it on our own, why does the Holy Spirit need to come live inside of us to empower us? Zechariah 4, 6 makes it clear. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And what you see here with these people we're going to look at today is they were zealous, but they were ignorant of what God wanted for them. They were not doing it according to the knowledge of God, and they're basing it on their own works and their own righteousness. Boys, I tell you, if you try to keep going forward on your own, oh my goodness, it, it, just, it just takes the joy out of your life. I really do believe that. When I see people that just keep trying to do it on their own, they don't have joy. They're worn out. They're tired. They get frustrated because they can't figure out why it's not coming together. I'm working so hard. I have prayed so much for this. It should work now. I have read so many scriptures on this. I have served so much. There's a lot of I. You're trying to do it by your own works, verse 32. That's going to cause you to stumble. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. So let's go back now and look at the three examples that are given to us. Because here's the thing. Once again, you can be zealous. Be zealously wrong. We got groceries here this week and brought them in, set them in the front room of the house. And so the boys were making trips, taking the groceries in. And Layden, our two-year-old, wanted help. And so he picked up, he was going to carry the milk in. So here's little Layden, and he picks up a gallon of milk in each hand. And that little guy was going to do it. So he tried, he tried. So I said, I said let, let Daddy help you. He goes, no, no, I do it. I said, okay, okay. So he tries. I said, let Daddy help you. No, no, I do it. So he lets go of the one gallon of milk. So now he tries to pick up the other gallon of milk. He's putting everything he had into it. Layden, let, let, let Daddy help you. No, 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 I do it. He goes on, he struggles, he struggles. Finally, he stops, he looks at me, he goes, can't Daddy do it? Now, the whole point of that is that little guy was zealous. There's no doubt about it. He was zealous. He wanted to be like his big brothers. He wanted to help out. He wanted to carry that milk into the kitchen. He was zealous for works. He couldn't do it. I know people that are zealous for their marriage. They would do whatever they can to save their marriage, except give it over to the Lord. I know people that are zealous for their kids. They would do whatever they could to see their kids get saved, except just give them over to the Lord. And so what Layden had to do is to stop and give it over to Dad, let Dad carry the milk, and you know what? It worked out pretty good. Sometimes what we have to do spiritually is stop, give it over to Dad, and let him just take care of it, and things work out pretty good. You can be zealous, but you can be zealously wrong, and you will wear yourself out, you'll become frustrated, and you'll lose all joy in the Lord. Let God do all the heavy lifting. So let's look at these examples here of these people. The first one we have is Esau. 
We're going to be picking up in verse 9. That's where we left off last week. It says, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I'm going to read a little bit more, but just remember Esau. First example. Verse 14, now, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to this Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, now remember Pastor Craiger used to say, when you see therefore, remember why it's therefore, look for it. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, let's just stop there. We're introduced to two people, Esau and Pharaoh. Now, you may think, okay, I didn't really get anything out of those passages. What, what are we supposed to see here? Two examples of people that tried to do it on their own, apart from the Lord, and how it failed. But even one step further, we see God working in their lives, really not good. Did you catch this with Esau? Look at this phrase right here in verse 13. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Is that really fair? I mean, they weren't even born yet. Look, read verse 11. The children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. They haven't done anything wrong, and God still says, I choose Esau to be the, the one to be served. Excuse me, to serve. I choose Jacob over Esau. I choose to love him. Esau was the oldest. That's not the way it should have been. But yet they hadn't done anything wrong, and God still chose Jacob over Esau. And look at Pharaoh. Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. So God purposely raised up Pharaoh to be judged. I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sound fair. Esau is, is kicked out, doesn't even get a chance. Even before he's born, he's kicked out. Pharaoh is born to be judged. That just really doesn't sound fair at all. That's why Paul writes verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul says, is this really fair? And even goes one step further, verse 15, God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But that just doesn't sound fair. What happens if I want mercy, and God doesn't want to give me mercy? What happens if I want compassion, and God doesn't want to give me compassion? What about the flip side? I don't want mercy. I don't like God. God says, tough luck, you're going to spend all of eternity with me. Reminds me when my kids do something bad. It's like, I know you don't want to sit with me, but tough luck, you're stuck to my my seat right now. You're just going to sit right with me. I'm having you all for eternity, even though you don't like me. Tough. Is That's what it comes across like. Poor Esau doesn't give a chance. He's kicked out even before he's born. Poor Pharaoh doesn't get a chance. He's kicked out even before he's born. God says, I'll show mercy to who I want. I'll show compassion to who I want. And that's the way it is. See, now, if you just look at it from that perspective, you walk away saying, God's kind of mean. This really isn't fair. I mean, there, there may be somebody who legitimately wants that relationship with Jesus. Their heart is broken over their sin, and, and they're, they're crying out to Christ for forgiveness. And God says, no, nah, I don't want to. Is that what those passages are saying? Of course not. So that's why we have to go back and look at Esau and Pharaoh and say, well, what, what happened to them for God to so decide that they're the bad guys? And that God can say, I will do what I want when I want. Because he even goes down one more step further. Verse 19, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the, not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath 
and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory in the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So basically, if God says, James, is this what it's saying? I, I, I want to use Pharaoh for destruction, so Pharaoh's going to be destruction. I want to use Esau for destruction, so Esau's for destruction. I want to use Jacob for blessing, so Jacob's for blessing. And we sit there and say, verse 20, Lord, why? Paul says, hey, no, no, don't you dare question God. Don't you dare ask him. You're the thing formed. Why would you ask him? If God wants to make Esau bad, Esau's bad. If God wants to make Pharaoh bad, Pharaoh's bad. If God wants to make Jacob good, Jacob's good. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you think. I'm God and I can do whatever I want. To me, that sounds like a spoiled three-year-old. So obviously there has to be more to the story on why Pharaoh and Esau didn't make the cut and why God so predominantly said, I have planned it this way. Let's go back and find out. Please turn your full to Genesis chapter 25. Let's go look at the life of Esau, and let's find out what happened to this guy. Genesis 25. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, Pharaoh was raised up for judgment, vessels are made for destruction, vessels are made for blessing. What is God trying to do here? Because if you remember correctly, when we studied a couple weeks ago, when we got into those terms of foreordained and predestined and foreknowledge, we talked about how the gospel message is offered to everybody. God does not want to see anybody die. We've been talking about this on Revelation study on Wednesday nights. 2 Peter 3.9, God desires all men to be saved. Ezekiel 33 says, I have no delight in the death of the wicked. But then why would God do this with Esau? Why would God do this with Pharaoh? Well, let's get back to the beginning, Genesis 25, verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Then the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One shall, people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau was, excuse me, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, if you look there at the beginning, if anything, Jacob's the bad kid. Grabbing the heel, coming out the birth canal? I mean, come on, that's the one that needs to be disciplined as soon as he gets out. He's the troublemaker. So... Esau doesn't make the cut, as we just read in Romans. God, even in the womb, says Esau's out. Well, why? Well, let's see what happens with Esau, verse 29. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Oh, okay, wait a second. Maybe God did know what he was doing here. Because now that you see Esau growing up, you see Esau not wanting the birthright. That's kind of a big deal. Esau was the oldest. He would have the birthright. Jacob goes on to become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau was, could have had that. Esau didn't want that. So since we can look ahead, or I should say for us, we're looking back when God says, I choose Jacob over Esau, it's not that God's being mean. God says, I know how Esau's going to respond. I know that Esau's going to despise his birthright. I know that Esau will sell up the privilege and honor of being the head of Israel for food. So therefore, since Esau does not want what I want to give him, 
why would I even give it to him to start with? Now, this is not some type of meanness on God's part of, well, if you don't like me, I don't like you. No, it's not that at all. God says it's an honor and a privilege to be given the birthright, to be the head of Israel. And Esau despises that. He's willing to trade it for food. Now look at verse 32. I don't want to get on a little tangent here. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Now come on. He really is about to die? He is that far down in hunger? Bones are sticking through his skin. His appearance is gaunt. He's got nothing left. And if he doesn't eat this food, he's going to die? Now, if you study out Esau's life, he's a man of emotion. And as a man of emotion, he doesn't look at the privilege and honor of having the birthright. And so therefore, since he despises it, it's let go of. And so since it's let go of, Jacob takes it. But let's get a little more detail in here to Esau. Jump ahead to chapter 28, please. See, look at verse 6. It says, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed with him, gave him charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughter of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padan Aram. So basically what's going on here is Isaac said, Hey, don't get some heathen girl. Get a nice Jewish girl. And so Isaac went and got a nice Jewish girl. Verse 7. But Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone from to Badan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajah, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Why do we bring this point up? Esau is trying to work himself into blessing. Esau is trying to work himself into the good favor and the good graces of his dad. We can't do that. Do you really think if you're sitting there and you're reading tonight in the Word and you get done you read Psalm 1, do you think if you go read Psalm 2, all of a sudden money's going to show up at your door? Wow. The Lord says, you took an extra 10 minutes to read. I'm just giddy, you know? I mean, if I pray for this job for five minutes, but if I pray for 10 minutes, God has to give it to me. No. See, what you're doing is going back to what we said at the beginning. You're basing your relationship with Christ on works. No, I'm not. I know I am saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ on the cross by him and him alone. Agree. But now you're basing your relationship with him on works, that the more good you do, the more he has to bless you. The more nice things you do, the better your life is going to be. Because obviously if I was more in the word, more in prayer, my marriage would be better, my life would be better, my car would run better, more bills would get paid, my health would be better. And so therefore, if bad things happen to me, it's obviously because I'm not reading and praying and studying and serving enough. Now, God loves you no matter what. Esau is an example of a person who despises his birthright, so therefore, God says, Esau, you're out. You didn't want it? I'm not going to give it to you. And then you see Esau being a man of the flesh, a man of works. And this man of works is trying to earn back good favor. Oh, it doesn't work that way. And what happens is, is Esau descendants become the Edomites, and they become a trouble. They become a thorn in the side of Israel for all their existence. So in fact, the entire book of Obadiah, shortest book in the Old Testament, but the entire book of Obadiah is about their destruction. And we won't get into all the details there, but we know from studying out Obadiah that they were violent against Israel. They fought against them. When Israel needed help, they just kind of stood back and laughed at them. So God knew what he was doing. So Esau has proven over time to not be the right choice. So when now when we read Romans 9 where it says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, it's not God being mean, God knowing what's going to happen in the full picture. God was proved to be right. Now let's look at Pharaoh, though. Now Pharaoh's a little different story. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. How would you like to hear that? You've been raised up to be judged. I don't know if I like that. So does Pharaoh have a chance? Well, we've studied this out a lot of times out here before. With Pharaoh, 
Every time Aaron and Moses came to set Israel free back in Exodus, they always did some type of miracle to try to show the power of God, and Pharaoh kept rejecting. But we know that the Bible says that uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the Lord. But we also know that before Pharaoh's heart was hardened, if you're taking notes, you can write down these passages. It's Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.32, and Exodus 9.34. 8.15, 8.32, 9.34. All those reference says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So what happened was, as time and time again, when God came to show his power and might to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the Lord and said, I don't want this. And so since he said, I don't want this, eventually God said, fine, you make a choice of not wanting it. I'm going to take that choice you make, and now I'm going to go with it. It's not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's not that Pharaoh was saying, listen, Moses, Aaron, I believe you. But this whole God thing, he's making me not believe you. No. He rejected. He hardened his heart. He didn't want it. So God said, you know what, Pharaoh, since you've given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to reject, I'm going to harden your heart now because you rejected. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this is something that we can relate to a lot. Turn your to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 3. Because we need to talk about this for a little bit. Because there's, there's two different ways that your heart becomes hardened. One is the idea of salvation. Hebrews 3, every time you hear the gospel message presented to you, if you choose to reject that message, your heart gets a little harder towards the Lord. Because you've heard it before. So that way when someone comes up to you and starts telling you about Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you sit there, yeah, yeah, I know, I know this. I've heard it, I know. That's the scary part as you know. And your heart becomes a little harder. See, I heard a great example of this. They said the same sun that can take mud and bake it and make it hard like clay is also the same sun that can melt ice into water. So it just depends on how you respond to God. If you reject God, your heart becomes hard. If you're open to his leading, your heart melts towards him. God's calling is still the same. We just respond to it differently. But anytime, you've heard us make this point out here before, anytime you see a, a verse repeated from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's usually a pretty good reason because God's not bad with words. There's a reason why he did it. So if that verse is repeated once in a chapter, that's a big deal. If that verse is repeated twice in a chapter, I'd say that's even a bigger deal. If that verse is repeated three times in the span of a little over a chapter, I think God's trying to make a point. Look here at Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Let's start in verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Okay, so don't harden your heart. Got it. Okay, now look at verse 15. While it said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And one more time just for fun, look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Yes, I made you go all the way to Hebrews just to hear the same verse three times. Because if God thought that that verse is so important to repeat again and again, why does he say that? Because that's a dangerous place that we can come. If you don't know Christ as your Savior... And every time you hear the gospel message presented, if you just keep saying, not now, not now, your heart gets a little harder to it, become a little desensitized to it. It's no longer that big a deal to you. It doesn't stir your heart like it used to. That's why Hebrews also says, today is the day of salvation, to make that choice today. Now, obviously there's a vital importance of understanding that of when the gospel is presented, but what about us that's been walking with the Lord? Can our heart become hard towards the Lord? You bet. What happens if the Lord lays something on your heart to do? He wants you to contact somebody. He wants you to be a better witness at work, more time in the Word, more time in prayer. He wants you to find a place to serve at church. I don't know, love your wife more, love your husband more, love that coworker more, I don't know. So you hear that. It's a distinct calling of the Lord. You know what God has asked you to do, but, but you don't want to. So you just kind of turn God off. As we talked last week about falling spiritually asleep, you, you hit the little God snooze button. Not, not now, Lord. Come back to me in nine minutes. So what happens is you reject 
Well, then he asks you again. You reject again. You're just not ready for it. Your heart becomes a little harder and a little harder and a little harder towards his calling in life. So what happens is since you're not doing his calling in life, you don't have any joy. See, I know people that are born again saved. I firmly believe this, that they know Christ as their Savior and that they love him. But the Lord has asked them to do something with their lives and to do something. It's his will, and they reject it. And so therefore, since they reject it, they are miserable and they have no joy. Why do they have no joy? Because they're not being obedient to God's calling. I, I, I am the prime example of this. There are times in my life where the Lord lays it on my heart. This is what I want you to do. Okay, God, I got it. Okay, oh, James, I want you to go do this. No problem. I'll get to it. I don't really want to do it. I don't want to, I don't know, fill in the blank. I don't want to go contact that person. I don't want to deal with that situation. I don't want to read that. I don't want to make that change. So I just put it on the spiritual back burner. God comes back again. James, I, I really want you to do that. Will do, Lord. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Heart becomes a little harder, becomes a little harder. And so what happens is there's a frustration that then starts to build up. Why? Because you're frustrated at the Lord. You're frustrated at not doing it. And then your spiritual walk just starts to disappear. Why? Because your heart becomes a little harder and a little harder. I, I had something just pop up recently. Got up in the morning, and what I try to do every morning when I get up is I always try to say, okay, Lord, this is not my day. This is your day. I'm just a vapor that James, according to the book of James. And so I have my plans, what I want to do today, but my plans don't matter. What are your plans for me? And then I say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. Okay, that's a great prayer. Yeah, that prayer only works if you listen. <laughs> so I sound really spiritual in the morning. Lord, this is your day. Okay, so then he tells me what to do. I don't want to do that, Lord. No, no, how about, you know, church can do that. You know, I don't want to do that. And so, so what happens is we start rejecting. And then what, really what we're saying is, you know, Lord, give me, give me five, ten options. I'll pick three. No. Didn't we just read back in Romans 9? I'm just a piece of clay. Who am I to argue against God? As it says in Romans 9, verse 20, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? See, the thing is, I think I have a say. And some of you that are really frustrated right now in life or spiritually, you think you have a say in things. So that way, when the Lord comes and says, does do this, and you don't want to do it, you think you have the right to reject it. You don't. You are the created being. You are the formed thing, as it says there in Romans 9. Our responsibility is to serve the Lord in the capacity and the way that he called us. And when we do that, that's when we truly find joy. When we aren't doing what he's called us to do, there is no joy. And I repeat this again. I know a lot of people that I believe are born again and saved, and they have no joy in life, very simply put, because they're not doing what God asked them to do. And they're bucking God again and again and again. There's a great verse in Job, and I love it. It says, why do you, O man, argue against the Lord? Wow, what a silly idea to reject the Lord. And so your heart becomes harder. So fill in the blank, I don't know what it is. If God's asked you to love your wife more, every time you reject it, your heart becomes harder, you're probably going to start loving her less. If God says, I want you to be a better employee at work, and I know you've got a difficult boss, but I want you to be a better light and a witness, if you keep rejecting that, you're probably going to go into work and it's going to be worse. If God says, I want you to be a better friend, whatever, whatever it is, when you reject what he's called you to do and your heart becomes harder towards it, you lose joy because you're not in what God's will is for your life and you're trying to do it on your own. Go back now to Romans 9. Put this all together. See, what happens is when we reject it, verse 32, our first verse that we went through, we're not walking in faith. We're walking by works. By faith, God says, do what I do it. By works, I want to do it. So what happens, verse 32? I stumble. Do you ever feel like your Christian walk is just one trip over another trip? 
Maybe you need to stop and ask yourself, am I truly in God's will? Am I doing what he's called me to do? Or is the reason I'm stumbling through life is because I'm trying to do it on my own? Then takes us to chapter 10 again. You may be zealous, but are you doing it according to the knowledge of God of what his will is? And if you're saying, okay, James, I keep hearing you mention his will, I don't know what his will is. And that's why you stop and you pray. That's why you stop and you fast over this. That's why you stop and you seek him. Because why would you want to take steps on your own accord? goes back to what we said at the beginning. Because I can do this. I don't need to know God's will because I can do this. No, you can't. We need to know that we walk by faith, not by our works. We don't want to stumble over it. We may have a zeal, but is that zeal pointing in the right direction in the knowledge of God? Or are we ignorant of God's plan for us? Esau was ignorant of what God wanted from him. He rejected the birthright. Wow, what a loss. And then he tried to gain favor by works. It didn't work. Pharaoh was given opportunity after opportunity, but there was a pride in Pharaoh of not wanting to give himself up over to the Lord. And that ended up being a judgment on him. That's why we sit here and we look at these passages again. Verse 19 of Romans 9. Why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? We sit there and say, well, why would anybody do this? I shared with you a couple weeks ago when I first got saved. Anytime I got the opportunity to present the gospel to somebody, I I could never figure out why they didn't want it. (laughs) It just blew my mind. Why would you not want this? And even now today, when you get a chance to talk to someone, they're going through a difficult time in life, not that I have all the answers, but sometimes Scripture makes the answer abundantly clear. And so you give them the Scripture and say, this is exactly what the Lord would want you to do in this situation. You see them fighting that. You sit there and you say, why are you resisting His will? It just makes no sense. But then you know what I do? I go home and I resist His will. Because I still want to do verse 20. I am the thing that is formed. I am the piece of clay And I want to go to God and say, you know what, Lord? I mean, I I have to be honest. I've done this before. And does this just not sound ignorant? You you, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've really thought about this. I think this is what we should do. Oh, my goodness. You're just waiting for that lightning, you know, to come down and just fry you right there. I have thought about it. This is what we should do. It's almost like God's up in heaven saying, thank you, James, because I really didn't know what to do on that one. And so, so glad you have wisdom beyond your years. I mean, what a, what a dumb thing to do. But yet, is this not what we do in life? I, I had a situation, and I, this is horrible, and it was a really difficult situation that popped up, and I'm praying over this, and I said, Lord, I, I really said this, Lord, I really need you on this one, implying that those other little situations, I don't really need you on. Because I can handle that marriage counseling. I can handle that traumatic situation. I can handle that Bible question. But this one, Lord, this one's a big one. I could really use your help on this one. What an ignorant thing to say. That's why 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him. Every now and then I have someone come up to me, and I'm not picking on anybody, but they'll come up and say, I have a really hard time praying for myself. You know what I always say? I pray for myself more than anybody else. Because why do I do that? Because Jesus set the example. (laughs) Go back and read John. He has whole chapters devoted to praying for who? himself. Lord, I need your strength so that way I can go strengthen others. Lord, I need your comfort so I can go comfort others. Lord, I need your love so I can go love others. Yes, I pray for your comfort. I pray for your strength. I pray for your love. I pray for healing in your relationships and healing in your lives, etc. But I also pray that for myself because if I start thinking I can do it on my own, what are we really doing? We're doing exactly what we just said here and we keep going by. I'm not walking in faith. I'm walking in works. Lord, I can handle this one. I'm good. I got it. I'm late in trying to carry the milk. I, I can get this one. I don't, I don't need your help, Dad. 
Yeah, you do. You really do. To walk on my own is to walk in ignorance. To walk in my own is to have a zeal with no knowledge. And to walk on my own is to walk in works and not faith. And boy, it didn't work out for Esau. It didn't work out for Pharaoh. And our last example here, it didn't work out for Israel. Because Israel rejected the idea of salvation through the Messiah. And that's what verses 25 through 29 are about. Since they rejected salvation through the Messiah, salvation came to us. Because they sat there and they said, how can the son of a carpenter be the redeemer of our sins? That's a lot of wisdom on their part. That's a lot of ignorance on their part. And that's a lot of misdirected zeal on their part. If they would have walked in faith, they would have seen that. This is what I want to finish up with. I'm going to finish up with right here, verse 16. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Okay, think about what you want changed in your life. Think about what the Lord has laid on your heart that you need to do. How much of that are you trying to do on your own? Because I look right here at verse 16. It's not of them of him who wills. That's the person that wants it. I want this so bad. I want so bad to have this ministry of just reaching people. I want this so bad to see my marriage healed. I want this so bad to see my kids walking with the Lord. Whatever, I want so bad to see my grandkids walking with the Lord. So it's the one who wills. So I am going to do whatever I can to make this happen. Wow, now that's you doing it on your own works. Yes, you may want it so bad. But look at the end part of that verse again, verse 16. It's a God who shows mercy, not you. What about the next one? The one who runs. That shows effort. This is the one I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep trying so hard, and my effort will eventually be rewarded by the Lord. I will just keep working so hard, and eventually all these good things will come my way, and all the healings will happen, and all the redemption will happen, and all everybody will get saved because of my effort. Boy, you've got to quit running and realize the end of verse 16. It's God who shows mercy. If anything, verse 16 is so freeing. I don't have to run. God shows the mercy. I don't have to desire it and want it so bad because God shows mercy. Now, before you think that this is saying, well, no, 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 James, here, there's an effort of running. Paul talks about running in 2 Timothy. There's an effort of desiring, desiring to go deeper in the Lord. I agree. But in the context of Romans 9, the context of this chapter is, is somebody putting all the effort in themselves and trying to do it on their own accord, like Esau did, like Israel, like Pharaoh. That's the context. There is an effort of running, and that's in 2 Timothy. There is an effort of desiring, and we've talked about that. But in this context, it's somebody trying to supplant themselves with God with their own works and effort. One of the best things you could do is just sit back and go to verse 32 and realize it's faith, not works. What a freeing thing that is. Lord, you just want me to love you? Yeah. You just want me to be obedient to your calling? Yeah. How simple is this? When God says go, you go. When God says stop, you stop. When God says speak, you speak. It's amazing how simple life can become when you just submit yourself under the will of God and you realize that I can have a zeal for God, but not according to my knowledge, not according to my works, not according to my ignorance. But I will have a zeal for God, a desire for Him based on Him and not me. And I'll just quote the verse one more time, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Letting the Holy Spirit guide and direct us into all things. What a freeing, freeing thing that is. If you guys want to come forward here for the final song. Just want to do a couple quick reminders as we get ready to close up. Just uh, check out the uh, sign-up sheets back there to the right. We have uh, Dinner with Dad coming up. We also have Heart